Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Back Bay Books, publisher of the novel Room by Emma Donahue, now available in trade paperback. Room is a runaway international bestseller that The New Yorker calls astounding and terrifying. O Magazine says, quote, a novel so disturbing that we defy you to stop thinking about it days later, end quote. And Kirkus calls it a searing tale of survival and recovery in the voice of a five-year-old boy, wrenching as befits the grim subject matter, but also tender, touching, and at times unexpectedly funny, end quote. That's Room by Emma Donahue, available now in trade paperback from Back Bay. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, this is it. Here we go again. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for putting your headphones in your ears. Or if you have headphones that rest on the outer ears, thank you for putting your headphones on your ears or listening on speakers. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. I appreciate you tuning in. Today's guest is Steve Almond. You know who he is, right? If you don't know who Steve Almond is, there's something wrong with you. He's the author of several books. He wrote a book called Candy Freak. He wrote a book called Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life. And now he's written a book called God Bless America. It is a collection of short fiction from Lookout Press. It's going to be published on October 25th. It's coming up. Just a couple of weeks. You can pre-order it now at Amazon. You can also go to the Lookout Press website and buy it there direct at a cut rate. Pre-order it. Go do it. It's called God Bless America. Steve Allman and I are going to be talking in just a moment. We're going to get into stuff. Before we get there, some quick orders of business, some news. This show is now available on iTunes. You can subscribe for free. It happened. The bureaucratic nightmare is over. This show, now available on iTunes, free of charge. You can subscribe. It'll automatically load up to your, or upload to your iTunes, and you can listen on your phone or on your iPod or your iPad or whatever. So go there, do that. It's free. Uh, what else? I want to talk a little bit about names, okay? So I'm sitting here in the home office. I'm at my desk. I'm staring at my screen, 
And every once in a while, because I sit with my back to some bookshelves uh, in my office, every once in a while, uh, I'll turn away from the screen, I'll spin around in my chair, and I'll just look at the shelves. And sometimes I'm trying to figure out, I need a book. I need to grab a book. Where is the book? And I'm looking at all the different spines of the books. And I see authors' names. And I start reading them. Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Raymond Carver. You know, it just goes down the line. Whatever authors are sitting there on my shelf. And it occurs to me that I sort of obsess on names, on the phonetics of names. I feel like some names lend themselves well to literary pursuits. Some names sound more literary than others. And I think the other side of this equation is the fact that I've never liked my first name, Brad. How many authors are there out there named Brad? There's like Bradford Morrow, but that doesn't even count because Bradford is different than Brad. I don't know how many Brads there are in the literary world. I can live with Listy, but Brad is sort of a sticking point with me. And I think that the reason for that is that all throughout my life, I've noticed, especially in movies, sometimes in television, but especially in movies, the name Brad is used as sort of a de facto name for either a douchebag or a buffoon or or some sort of asshole. It just happens. And, you know, you you think back to like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Judge Reinhold's character, Brad Hamilton, gets caught masturbating. Uh, The the movie Teen Witch. Are Are you familiar with Teen Witch? I'm a fan of that movie. Uh, I think it's sort of uh, you know a cult classic. The quarterback, Brad Powell, not really the kind of guy that you want to emulate. I mean, at least not me. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Brad Majors. And then there is uh, American Beauty. And I remember this distinctly. Sitting in a dark theater, 1999, American Beauty has just come out. It's gotten all this critical acclaim. I'm at the theater. It's a packed house. And Kevin Spacey is about to lose his job. It's the first act of the movie. And he's talking to Annette Benning, and he's talking to his daughter, and he's like, and this efficiency expert named Brad isn't that perfect. And everybody in the theater just snickered at the same time. And I'm sliding down into my theater chair thinking, you know, Jesus Christ, like everyone's in on this. People just hear the name Brad, and they automatically are just like, you know, chuckling. So, uh, you know, what other ones are there? I'm thinking of Roadhouse, Brad Wesley. He was sort of the villain, but, you know, it goes on and on. I think there actually is some truth to this. I don't know why in our culture my name has gotten lumped in uh, with this particular kind of person, but that's the way that it seems to me, and it sort of fucks with my head when I, you know, sit down to write and I'm doing literary things. I know that this is neurotic, and I want you to know that, like, I, I don't go by a pen name, so ultimately rationality has won out. I sort of have come to the conclusion that if the book is good, it doesn't matter what your name is. And if the book is not so good, even if your name is like the most literary name in history, you know, that's not going to save it. So you just go by the name that you were given, and that's that. But it does make me think a little bit. I do get a little hung up on names. I'm fascinated by the whole, like, you know, phonetics of a name. Jonathan Franzen, sounds literary. David Foster Wallace, sounds literary. Jonathan Saffron Four sounds literary. You stick that middle name in there, it does something. F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, please. Brad Listy. I don't know. I can live with Listy. Maybe I should have gone by my initials. I don't know. Thrown in David. That's my middle name. So, you know, I know that's self-critical and a little neurotic, but I thought I would bring it up. 
Uh, you know, I think authors a lot of times think about their name, especially early in their career, you know, pre-publication. What am I going to go by? And, uh, you know, another thing that, that sort of springs to mind while we're thinking about self-criticism is criticism in general. A friend of mine asked me, uh, you know, is this, are, are all the authors on this show, are they all just friends of yours? Are these authors that you just, you know, you like them across the board? And my answer was, well, these are all authors that I'm interested in. And I'm interested in authors generally, but I'm trying to talk to authors who are doing interesting work. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, it's work that I've read and it's personally fascinating to me. Other times it's work that I'm familiar with or I'm interested in the author as a person or both or some weird combination uh, therein, thereof. But it's not about me being a critic. That's not what this show is about. It's not about me levying my opinion of a book necessarily. It's more about me talking to the authors and getting to know them and hearing their story and their personal background and some stuff about how they work and what they've done and, and all, the, all the rest. But it's not about criticism. I'm not a critic. And that's really the point that I'm driving at is that I'm not wired that way. I think that there is a place in the world for you know art criticism. I think that you know good critics serve as a bridge between um, you know the reader and the book, or the the movie watcher and the movie. You know they can help us to understand the art better and the art's effect on us better. They can be good conversation starting points. They can get us thinking about what the thing means and how it operates and how it makes us feel and all the rest. So I'm not bagging on critics and saying that they shouldn't exist. I'm just saying that I can't do it. And I think that the reason I can't do it is that I'm just too neurotic and unsure of my own mind. My opinion changes so rapidly. And just the other day, I did one of these turnarounds in my office. I spun around and I reached for a book and I reached for, uh, you know, a Vonnegut novel. And Vonnegut is huge for me. He was huge for me ever since I was a kid. Uh, you know, I'm from Indiana. He went to high school right down the road from where I went to high school. And, you know, I've been reading him since I was in seventh grade. And I go back to look at one of his old novels, and I'm flipping through it, and it's not the same for me anymore. I don't know if I could read this book cover to cover easily anymore, and yet I still love it because back in the day I could, and I've just changed. And I guess that's sort of common. That's just, you know, obvious, right? But if you're a critic, you're writing this sort of definitive opinion of the book. Are you fixed? Is that how you feel about it forever or just that day? And so then I started thinking about like how quickly my opinion of, of something can change. And for some reason, I started thinking back to this vacation that my wife and I took to Hawaii. And, you know, we, we had been planning this thing. We were desperate to get away. We'd been working. We just wanted to unplug and go to an island and, and just, you know, relax and read books for a week. So we go there and we rent this car and we get in the car and we're so excited to be in Hawaii. We're on the island of Kauai. It's beautiful. The air is clean. Everything is lush. The sun is shining. The ocean is beautiful. We're in paradise. And we turn the radio on. And the first song we hear is this version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And it's sung, I want to say it's sung by a Hawaiian guy. Do you know the version that I'm talking about? Here, I'll, I'll play a bit of it for you just so you can kind of hear it. You know, we listen to this song and all of a sudden we're getting, uh, you know, all sentimental. I think we were holding hands. We were like, this is the, you know, I can't believe we're in Hawaii. It's so good to be here. This song is beautiful. This place is beautiful. We're beautiful. You know, you just start to get sappy. 
And this song was just like the perfect moment marker. And I was convinced that it was the best version of that song that I'd ever heard. It was perfect. And seven days later, we had heard the song so many times. I don't know what it is about Hawaii. If it was, you know, if this is common, just normal stuff, or if this just happened to be the case for us, the timing of things, the way that the stars were aligned everywhere we went, this song was playing. Every time we got in the car and turned the radio on, this song was playing. By the end of the week, it was the worst version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that I'd ever heard. I couldn't stand it. It made me feel like a buffoon. It made me feel like the tourist that I was. Here I am in the islands, listening to this song. It's such a maudlin version. It's such a maudlin song. Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Here we go again. Do you know what I'm saying? My opinions aren't fixed. Things change rapidly. I can't be a critic, at least not at this point. Uh, I have a hard time with it, especially really negative criticism. And uh, it brings me to that old Vonnegut thought or that quote where he said that, you know, attacking a novel is like putting on a suit of armor and attacking a hot fudge sundae. That's sort of true, right? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, let's get on with it. I'm going to talk to Steve Almond here. He's a good one. This is a guy who does know his mind, or he knows it right now. I think he operates, you know, Steve is really in touch with his own conscience. And he really is great at writing about uh, morality. I love him for that. Like when I read his stuff, I feel like, uh, you know, I feel like I'm almost listening to a really good uh, priest. I hope he doesn't, I hope he doesn't mind that I call him or that I'm making that comparison because I think there are a lot of us who read his stuff and feel that way. He's just great at organizing his thoughts in that way. And he has a really strong moral center and he's willing to stand up for what he believes in. He's done it repeatedly. Uh, in his life. He's all, he also does it in his work and he's just really gifted. He's a great writer. He's also funny as hell and just super, uh, intelligent and all the rest. So I'll stop, uh, babbling about him and just let you listen to us talk. This is me and Steve Almond. Please sit back and enjoy. Well, you know, like I said, my folks were kind of upwardly mobile hippies. They believed, you know, my mom was a civil rights activist. She you know, wound up going with some African-American students to, when she was at Antioch College, I think this was, to, a, you know, a, a segregated restaurant and sitting with them and, you know, demanding service. And 
she didn't, she, you know, it was not a happy thing. It was not an easy thing to do. It was really inconvenient. And it's a larger thing we're really talking about to some extent is how much are people willing to inconvenience themselves in order to try to make change. And, um, you know, so she's somebody who, she was a red diaper baby. Her parents were card-carrying members of the Communist Party during the 50s. There was a real culture of secrecy around it um, for understandable reasons. And my dad was from a family, you know, where his father was a famous political scientist. And, um, you know, he, he wound up, I, I think both of them wound up being part of the countercultural movement, even though they were both doctors. They went med at Yale Medical School. They're very ambitious. And they were trying to do a lot of things at once. My dad was a was a resident, and then a, I think you know teaching classes also out at Stanford and writing a book about communities, uh, healing the healing community. It's called. So he was doing sort of post, um, you know, sort of his his post medical work, resident work at Stanford, and also also teaching classes. And he was also um, organizing, helping students organize protests against the Vietnam War. So. You know, I didn't know all that stuff when I was a little kid, but I do know, for instance, that like we spent a summer um, up at a place called The Land, which was a commune that my folks had, you know, bought bought a share in and had tied, tried to help establish. And, you know, we lived in, in Palo Alto, California, which back then was this kind of quiet, sleepy little suburb. It hadn't been Silicon Valleyized. Um, but there was always a sense that kind of like your job was to think about, um, you know, somebody other than yourself. You know, we went to public schools and we went to the public school that was closest to our house, which was probably about half white students and half students of color. And that was not typical of the Palo Alto experience. But I think it's part of the reason that, um, you know, my folks were not going to send us to a private school. They weren't even going to move us to another school within the district. Like, you know, part of, part of their ethos was, hey, You've had a lot of advantages. We've had a lot of advantages. And, um, you know, in the best instance, you don't just think about yourself. And I, I do think that that is kind of a core part of, of what it means to be a writer or an artist of any sort. It's about empathy at the bottom of it. And what you're trying to do is get people to imagine the suffering and the ecstasies of other people to enlarge your moral imagination. And, um, and that's why I think it's so hard to find writers who are really right-wing. Um, because I think the, the modern sort of right wing is is predicated on denying that there's certain other people really matter at all, you know, whether it's poor people or immigrants or people who are uh, gay or transgender. So, um, you know, my attitude is sort of like, well, if if artists do have an extra responsibility to speak about this stuff, it's because they already agree with it, because they wouldn't be artists if they didn't. Well, and just to and and just to rewind a little bit, you said when you were uh, when you were a kid, your parents during the summers would take you to live on a commune, or is that just one summer? Well, we lived, yeah, yeah, we lived on this commune for a summer called the Land, and we actually they were part owners of it. And you know, the experience I was maybe five or six years old, Brad. So like my experience of it is completely episodic. It's like I remember. Uh, you know, having my foot stepped on by a cow. I remember um, that everybody was always running around naked, like all the kids, and I was sort of freaked out about that because we were these kind of suburban kids, you know? Right. Uh, you know, I remember, like, uh, my mom would, would sort of steal off to the hen house early in the morning and get us a couple of eggs to make sure we got some protein in us. Um, it was a very chaotic scene. 
I remember this one episode where my brother Mike and I, my twin brother Mike and I, um, you know, took a bath. My mom always wanted to make sure we got a bath every night because we were running around, you know, in the dirt, basically getting dirty. And um, and and this guy named Big Josh, remember him appearing in the doorway, very nice guy, and he was like this you know, giant guy who was dressed in denim. And Mike and I are, you know, there in the hot tub. My mom's gone off to do something, you know. She's left us there for, you know, a minute or two. We were six years old and she could trust us. And we immediately were like, he, he said something like, wow, that looks nice in there. And we're like, yeah, it is nice. You know, come join us. And like, there's Big John climbing into the bathtub with us. And my mom comes back. I was like, John, what the hell are you doing in the bathtub? You know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a crazy scene is the point. And my parents really... Um, loved it, but it was the problem I think that plagued the '60s as an era, which is that it was it was long on good ideals, but short on organization and people sort of taking responsibility. Yeah, why? Yeah, why is it that like the idealists can never get organized? You know, like, it seems that yeah. way. doesn't it seem that way? I mean, they sometimes can, but I just feel like uh, a lot of times the you know the dark side is good at uh and i'm not just i'm not just using the dark side as a as a euphemism for the right but you know what i mean like it seems like oh absolutely nefarious forces are often like very good at getting organized (laughs) that's right well it's you know that the fascists made the trains run on time you know and that's just a, a fact and and they're reassuring because they are more hierarchical they're more respectful of Authority. You know, you think about the moment in the Republican debates where all those people were cheering for Rick Perry, you know, um, executing those people. It's because the, you know, the, there's a certain mindset that respects authority and punishment and hierarchy, and that tends to be more organized because people don't question. It's not by consensus. There isn't a big long discussion about it. You know, one person takes charge, and there's a very rigid hierarchy, and people know where they stand and what they're supposed to do. Um, you know. If you look at the Occupy Wall Street movement, that's not what it's like. It's not centered around one or two leaders who just call all the shots and, you know, some lieutenants who carry it out. And that makes them seem disorganized or incoherent to the media people because that's how they operate. Sort of like who's in charge, who do we quote, you know, things are supposed to run on a very tight schedule. That's the nature of how they expect things to work. But that's not really the nature of how people who are idealistic and empathic conduct themselves because they know that everybody has an agenda and something to say. And, you know, it's sloppy. It's like old Donald Rumsfeld said about democracy. It's, it's messy. You know, it's a messy process in its real form. Right. Well, and, and so I'm curious to know, um, you know, as you were growing up and I imagine you were a pretty big reader as a kid. I wasn't. You were I was, I wish I was. Well, I mean, I don't, I, I, my perception is that I watched way too much TV. I do know that I was passionately into books like A Cricket in Times Square, Encyclopedia Brown, like, you know, Vonnegut later in high school, you know, and Catcher in the Rye. I mean, I absolutely loved the books that I loved. But I actually think part of the reason it took me such a long time to start writing and start writing well was because I was really far behind as a reader. It took me into my mid-20s to recognize just how kick-ass it was just to read for pleasure, not because it was assigned to me in class and I'd get brownie points for, you know, getting it right. Um, so I actually feel like I spent way too much time watching TV as a kid. I wish I could have those hours back. Yeah, I've watched a lot of TV. I still feel behind as a reader. Like, I, there's some... Yeah. I have friends who, you know, read, like, a book a day almost, it seems like. Not not a lot of them, but there are people out there that I know that are like that. And I'm, I'm like, at once, like, astounded and envious 
that you know a that they have the time and then b that they can read that fast and you know and then i start to feel anxious because i'm not reading as many books you know? you're you're singing my song that's that's exactly how i feel and i feel like there's all these amazing books that i should have read already and you know i mean i've gotten to a point you know you have a you have a, a small child i got two small kids i've gotten to a point where it's like i've got to take i've got to i've got to be able to it's such a balancing act with time and money you know because one really does equal the other when you're trying to pay the bills and, and you know support a family so i take i basically try to get assignments to review books for the globe or you know la times whatever it is in, so that i can read books you know so that i know that i'll be able to read this book and also be able to make it you know make a little bit of money isn't that sad that i just don't have like the time to read just because i would want to read a book you need to, you need to go back to the land you need to buy your share back <laughs> i know take, i know it man i know take it. Family it, back. You get can... Big John in the. Uh, believe me, we talk about it. You know, my wife and I sort of say, "Man, you know, we we've got to. Uh, we should we should get on a commune. You know, we we have this attitude of like there's a better, more natural way to live closer to the land. You know, with a bunch of friends where there's a real you, you know the forced dependence, not this like discretionary dependence. Real community depends on on having to depend on people and and having to get their help and give your own help to them. And the problem is, you know, like like most people. Uh, we would perish. You know, if we went off the grid, it would take about 37 hours before I perished. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh. that, I've, I've thought, I've, I've thought of that. I mean, I spent a summer on the Appalachian trail having never really camped before. And that was a lesson. I mean, that was like the hardest summer of my life. <laughs> exactly. Almost, but, but you know what, the thing about it is that I wasn't completely alone. That wasn't, I mean, that was off the grid and you know, in most people's eyes, but there were a lot of people out there and other people trying to do what I was trying to do. And you did wind up leaning on one another just as a matter of circumstance. That's, that's what you have to do. I mean, that's what community is about. That's why I do believe as much as there's a sort of, you know, real Americans in the small town, I do feel like the one thing that we've lost touch with in, in big urban settings, unless it's a really big urban setting. And, you know, uh, it's just the idea of a real forced dependence on your neighbors where you, there has got to be, it's not discretionary. You don't choose to help out if somebody needs to, I don't know, you know, um, uh, make sure that they have uh, enough fuel of whatever sort to keep warm in the winter or, uh, you know, I mean, where there's a real issue of privation and people have to cooperate in order to survive and get things done. That's what really creates and cements community. And you could try to have these other forms of community that are discretionary and they'll be effective to a certain degree but what really makes it happen is when people actually need each other and you know they've got skin in the game it's not something that they're doing as a discretionary activity well i remember yeah i remember reading some of uh, vonnegut's nonfiction, and i want to say when he was uh, an, you know studying anthropology at the university of chicago he had a professor whose entire like a very you know professor who in, influenced him pretty profoundly and the guy's entire um you know, the, the basis of all of his work is that human beings thrive best, you know, when there, is, right. when there is that kind of community connection, that one-to-one connection that like in the modern era, when you're, you know, everything's digital, everything's on a screen, seems, that, right. it seems like that, that, you know, some of that is lost. I, I think people in this, you know, you know, this from, from working with the nervous breakdown, people are hungry for community. They're really, really desperate. And um, especially people who, if you really just took video of them, 
would be sitting there staring at a screen, you know, most of their day. And I'm <laughs> sad, to say, sad to say that's me. I you know, know me too. I was just seeing myself. Yeah. I was seeing myself and it was making me sad. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but, but I think people are sort of trying to reach it through, through the screen and through these communities that they set up, whether it's at the nervous breakdown or at the rumpus or whatever, you know, little, they find their people, they find their tribe. But I do think that one thing that, you know, Occupy Wall Street or, you know, any, anything like that puts, across is the idea of, hey, you can actually go out into the world and find that. And, you know, it is possible to step away from the screen and actually move into the world as a physical being. And um, But regardless, I, I feel like the culture has become very atomized and people are sort of rushing through their, you know, rushing through the world, moving a lot more than they did, a lot more uprooted, disconnected from their family. And that's, been advantageous for certain things, but I think it's caused a lot of people to be extraordinarily lonely and extraordinarily needy for a bunch of people who they can connect to and feel connected to. And I think literature provides that, um, you know, and reading a great book, I mean, it's sort of what I try to say to students, like, look, the, the, the best reason to read is that you'll never be lonely. You know, if you have a good book, you won't be lonely. Or if you're, you know, there's an experience you can have of reading the book and getting very upset because you're implicated by it and you feel kind of involved with it emotionally. It's your story, but that's not the same as being lonely. You know, I can get quite upset, but it's sort of like if I start crying reading a book, it's usually very cathartic and relieving to me, you know? Well, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of reminded of uh, David Foster Wallace and his whole ethos about how Literature is the one art form that can really bridge the divide between two people at the consciousness level. And that, I think, was what he arrived at in terms of why he did the work or what, you know, the most redeeming quality uh, of literature is. And there, there's, a guy, there's a guy who, like Vonnegut and like a lot of writers, you know, was just crushingly depressed, you know. And, and I sort of sit there and go, well, I'm sure for him... Teaching was a big part of it because, you know, from talking to students and uh, that, that, like, that was how he reached, in some ways, sort of provided a bridge from whatever internal anguish and turmoil he was feeling. And, you know, teaching and also just writing were probably when he was, if not at his happiest, you know, that that was something he had that, that held, in, uh, held in abeyance or maybe just held at bay, um, you know, being, like, severely clinically depressed. So how do you, I mean, how do you deal with it? I mean, I, I, you know, you don't strike me as somebody who's like severely clinically depressed, but any writer who's confronting these things and then also any writer who's, who's doing the work, which is inherently lonely, you know, how do you, how do you cope? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I try to keep busy um, and, you know, try to you know, kind of have my say so that I feel like I'm, I'm in discussion with people um, even if in the morning I'm trying to work on the book. Or, but the truth is, Brad, when I'm working on something like one of these big failing novels that I'm always trying to you know, work at, I, I don't do very well. I don't cope very well. I'm unhappy. I'm depressed. I'm, I'm sort of aggrieved and lonely, and I'm a pain in the, neck, pain in the ass to my wife, and uh, I have trouble concentrating. I mean, I wish that I could say, like, I figured out the formula, but the truth is that when I'm um, kind of locked away in the cave trying to do the work, I'm completely overwhelmed with doubt and self-loathing and all the stuff that probably made me a writer in the first place. Uh, and I don't always, 
function real well. I mean, I do well when I'm out there reading and being able to connect with people and feel like I'm getting across. But when it's just me trying to like make the decisions every, you know, every two seconds as you have to do as a writer, I get buried by it. And I tell people like, I'd rather do anything other than write. I, I'm, I'm terrible at it. I, I'm, you know, I'm constantly, my mind's flitting away and, you know, I'm getting online and getting into one of these awful wormholes that, that, you know, the internet provides us now. And, um, or I'm just having these invasive self-loathing messages, you know, this doesn't matter. It's crap. You can't do this. It's really the exact same things I was feeling as a kid, you know, as the youngest child. I mean, I have a twin brother, but I always felt like the youngest child in this family where I was always incompetent, boring. I had nothing to say. And I was kind of this, just hated myself. And, um, writing really puts me right back in that place. Uh, if I'm, if I'm really keeping myself to it. Um, and, God, what a huge bummer to admit that, but it's just the truth, and I'd rather tell people that than sort of be like, well, you know, I've, I've, I've really figured out how to do it. I don't. I just manage it as well as I can and um, kind of hope that, um, I, I, if, if I, that I can sort of outlast the doubt. Yeah, I mean, and that, it's such a strange, I mean, that's one of the fundamental questions that I, I think I'm trying to not necessarily answer, but just talk about, you know, I want to pose it and then talk about it in this show because it strikes me as like the, this, one of the strangest things about writing and writers in general is that I think what you're talking about is really common. I, everything you said registered with me as a writer, I'm right. like, you know, that's me too. And right. yet at the same time, you have this compulsion to keep doing it. it it's just, there's a level of absurdity to it. You know, so it's like, how do you, I, I'm, tr I'm constantly trying to like sift through all that and be like, okay, this is really difficult. It borders on miserable a lot of the time. And yet right. I'm sitting here constantly trying to do it. Why? And the, 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 the worst thing is the feeling of like, okay, I'm miserable, but I'm sitting here complaining about sitting on my ass, trying to dream up some fictional world. <laughs> and I'm complaining about that. And there's people starving and trying to, you know, working in fucking copper mines, you know, in, in, in Brazil who are like, you know, having to breathe stuff that's going to kill them, in, you know, when they're 30. I mean, that that's the sort of ultimate self-loathing moment of like, I don't even have the right to complain about this. No, no. It, it's, <laughs> like, I'm just a spoiled brat for even complaining about right. it. Right. I mean, no, that's the, other, that's the other thing is that it's a privilege to even have the opportunity to experience right. that misery. <laughs> you know? Right, 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 right. So... But I, I think that you know one of the reasons I wrote this won't take but a minute, honey. That little DIY book of mine was because you know when I did my MFA, you could talk about issues of craft and point of view and you know plot and so forth, the things that were all. But you couldn't talk about the psychological and emotional barriers to doing good creative work, which to me feel like you know ninety five percent of the things that keep people from creating art successfully are are not technical things. They're internal, emotional, and psychological stuff that you have to manage. You don't figure it out and get the answer, but you just have to manage it. And um, I felt like the more I wrote and the more I sort of was in the state of, of struggling and beating myself over the head and feeling like a loser and all, all the things that you feel, the more I realized, like, wait a second, this is where the real struggle is, and where's the book that talks about these things? It's too squishy and psychological and touchy-feely, but it's exactly what people need to know, is that they're not the first person ever to experience this. It's to be expected, and they've just got to sort of forgive themselves 
as much as they can and keep at it. There's no secret formula, but at least knowing that it's really tough and that you're likely to encounter these problems, these feelings of self-loathing and doubt, this sense of crushing indecision, you know, all the, all the stuff that you, you experience when you're trying to concentrate like that in such an inattentive, cult, you know, sort of frantic, distracted culture, these things are going to come up. And it's comforting, I think, for people to, to know that and to know they're not alone. That that's sort of the price of doing business as a writer. Well, no, and it's it's like it's a, it's a kind of a form of meditation. I mean, it's concentrated, or it's a you know bearing witness to your own thoughts, and that practice makes sense to me, uh, particularly in in that it you know it's very similar to what you're doing as a writer. You're just sitting there, <laughs> and yeah. you're you're not moving, and you're watching you know what comes up, and you're trying to to you know hammer it into shape. But it's it can be really disconcerting, you know. It's difficult, especially as you say in a world where you know, we're offered endless opportunities for distraction and ways to sort of yeah. numb, numb ourselves and forget about it, you know, and not have to pay attention. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've monetized distraction at this point. Like, they've figured it out, you know, and you see this with the, the smartphones and the iPads. It's like they're they're trying to int- completely eliminate boredom in the culture um, by always allowing you to be able to watch a show or ego serve or whatever it is, like constantly. There's no moment that your mind might drift off into the ether. And um, But boredom is like a real laboratory, you know, I mean, for kids especially. Like, you say, I'm bored. It's like, well, that's the point at which their imagination has to kick in and make the box into a rocket, you know. And I think to some extent that's that's true of writers as well. I'm not saying that it's ever been easy to, to write. So I think it's always a struggle, but you can see how people like Dickens, you know, his, he's an unfair example because his mind was just a, the luscious jungle ever, you know, but um, he did not have the, the problem of constantly being able to like go on YouTube and, and check out the hamster eating the carrot or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> playing piano. Um, I love so that video. There, yeah, right? It's got, let me sort of look at it. So, like, where is the culture at right now? Well, let's see. Um, this brilliant lecture by David Foster Wallace, or, you know, whatever. It's a brilliant lecture by, uh, you know, by Carl Yanyama uh, about writing, uh, you know, got like 126 views. And let's see how the hamster eating popcorn on the piano is doing. Oh, 18 million views. Great. Yeah. We're in great shape. So. <laughs> that really is like a depressing, like, litmus test for the culture. <laughs> Yeah, and I, again, we're going to sound like like grandpa, but it is there's something dispiriting to me when I when I'm kind of hanging out at a at, like with other writers and the discussion is about like the great HBO TV shows, and I'm like, ah, you know, not that I expect everybody, I get it, everybody needs their shows are great, and everybody needs to unwind and find something they have in common, but it just is that feeling, and you know, in the pit of my stomach, like, wait a second we should be talking about liter- the literary arts or visual art. Um, and I guess actually, you know, uh, good TV series and movies are, they are, I don't guess, they're pieces of art. But if you know what I mean, I have that internal sense of like, hey, the reason that reading is way out at the edge of the culture is because there are these forms of, of entertainment and, and art that are easier to consume. And I'm not suggesting that TV shows aren't amazing and that they aren't brilliantly written and that, you know, but... I think the amazing thing about literature that that makes it different from TV or movies is, hey, the movie's in your head. It's a 50-50 collaboration. The person like goes off in their cave and writes the book, and then you have to come to the book, and everybody has their own version of 
you know, uh, Elizabeth Bennett and, and Mr. Darcy and, you know, Holden Caulfield and, you know, whoever the character is. And um, that's part of what makes it remarkable is that it, it invokes the imagination of the consumer piece of art. Uh, I think so much folk because you don't have everything delivered to you, the soundtrack and the you know, beautiful actors and the lighting and the rest of it. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's active participation and, it's interesting what you said, you know, that the the ease with which a person can consume the art form is the is sort of like the, the sticking point. Books are harder. You know, they're, they're, they're inconvenient. Yeah, they're they're, inconvenient. they require more. This is a culture that has made convenience their godhead, you know, and I, I think that writing is ultimately an incredibly inconvenient thing to do, and reading is an incredibly inconvenient form of entertainment. Reading is inconvenient entertainment. Because it's not just entertainment, you know, in its best iteration. And it's not just inconvenient because you have to really have a sustained attention to something. Um, and that's actually, you know, just the definition of art. And that's, that's small bellow. That's not me. You, see, you know, art involves the, the arrest of, dis, of, of uh, the arrest of your attention uh, in the midst of distraction. That's what art, that's when art happens is when you arrest, you stop your distraction, you're, you're, you're able to focus your attention in the midst of distraction. And the problem is that's really tough to do. When people talk about the sort of the dwindling resources on Earth, they're right. Water, cheap oil, absolutely. But the fundamental one is attention. It's our capacity to really pay attention. Uh, and that's the first and final act of love is just paying attention. And it's really hard to do. It's hard to do in your personal relationships. It's hard to do in, I find it's hard to do in my work. Um, you know, we've become a culture of intellectual and emotional grazers. That's what the Internet is. You just sort of graze a little nibble from here and then a nibble from there, a little bit of sports, a little bit of sex, a little bit of politics. And, you know, you're just grazing. Well, so what's the I mean, like how like what are some concrete ways that you try to combat that? You know what I'm saying? Like, do you do things in your life? Like I talked about meditation. I think that's something. Writing is something. Reading is it's they're all the same. Basically, it's like sitting still and concentrating on one thing uh, for a sustained period of time. But, like, are there things in your in your daily life? Like, do you are you one of those people who, like, limits your yourself on how much Internet you allow? Or are you disciplined in well, that I'm way? Really, uh, No, I'm not disciplined. I am disciplined in the sense that, like, people will say, well, you should get on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, or you should be, like, one of these really active people on Facebook. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I mean, do set certain sorts of limits. But, um, and, and I used to have, I didn't, I resisted getting a cell phone. I resisted getting a good internet connection. Uh, and then partly because so much of my work is predicated on just being able to be reached by people and being able to reach people, um, oftentimes sort of on deadline, I, I've had to have an internet connection in the fast one. I finally got a phone that's, it's not a smartphone, but it's it's not as dumb as my old phone was. <laughs> and you know, for for a long time, I had a phone that we had been through the wash a few times. It didn't work very well, and it was maddening for uh, for people to try to reach me. But it was kind of my way of making sure that I didn't have that many sources of distraction. But, but you know, but I'm not good at it, and that's the reason that I had to use all those artificial means to keep myself from it. I think the main thing that I try to do is like when I make when I make these little DIY books, that's my way of trying to say to a kid who might be eighteen or nineteen years old, like, hey, books involve you. They are 
something that is speaking to you. It's not above you. It's not some egghead esoteric pursuit. Books are, are going to meet you right where you live, and, and they're as intense and emotionally wrenching as any video game or TV show you're going to watch. In fact, even more so. And, you know, when I, when I, when I do a reading or teach or whatever, I'm, I'm constantly trying to say to people, look, this is about the level of attention that you're able to have. Even if I'm not, like, living up to it every minute of the day, I recognize that that's the ideal, and it feels important to me to... You know, to say that when I'm in a position of relative authority, you know what I mean? When people are listening to me, I feel like it's really important that I say, look, if you want books to still matter, if you want literature to still matter, then you've got to agree to slow down and stop grazing and um, start, you know, reading and thinking about uh, and talking about books and literary art and any sort of art and why that stuff matters. Uh, you know, making sure that you have a voice in the culture and uh, not just sort of sitting back and being a passive, taking it up the butt from late model capitalism. You know? Well, I mean, and I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of examples of, of contemporary literary work that sort of reflect the times, but also subvert them. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I'm sort of drawn to uh, literary collage. Like I like, and, and the essay that you wrote, uh, you know, about the Occupy Wall Street was sort of in that vein where it's these bursts, you know? Yeah. And, and, I hear what you say about grazing and I worry because I do that. I'm like, Jesus, you know, like I'm constantly, I do it too, dude. I, and none of these things that I say, I mean, I want to make very clear because I can, I can come off like a real, you know, didactic polemical little prick. Like none of these things that I'm talking about, have I figured out or am I better than I'm, I'm actually, that's why I'm so preoccupied by them and worked up by them because I'm, I'm failing in the same ways. And, you know, I mean, one, one piece of writing that comes to mind is, uh, Gary Steingart's book, you know, super, uh, super sad love story, where he is writing about, and this is true of Vonnegut's work as well, where he, you know, he, he's writing about, I think he's trying to sort of hold up a mirror, sort of, he's holding up a mirror to sort of where we are and how narcissistic and self-directed and distracted we all are right now. Um, you know, it's sort of taking our world and exaggerating it just, just a little bit, so it's utterly believable, and yet we're kind of shocked at how radically self-involved and distracted we've become. Um, but, you know, I, I don't believe, I think that can be done with traditional storytelling. You know, I know that, for instance, David Shields has this idea that, you know, there's, there should be this new radical form of writing that's sort of more pastiche and collage. And I'm like, you know what? People have always hungered for story. They absolutely have. People get to the best ideas through emotions. And it's great to read... Uh, Don DeLillo novel, I just wrote a long essay about him, so he, I have him in mind. It's great to read a writer like that who, where you know that whether there's a good plot or not, you're just in the presence of another absolutely exquisite mind that's so insightful about what's happening to us. I mean, that's a good example, parenthetically, of a guy who was way out in front of the culture. You know, oh, he God, yeah. directed, it's chilling, you know, when you sort of realize, like, he was talking about uh, sort of terrorists supplanting novelists as... as the people who revealed the inner life of the culture. You know, he's talking about that 20 years before there was a 9-11. You know, right. and you're like, oh, my God. Right. So I think, you know, sort of part of what writers and artists do is consciously or unconsciously sort of pick up on where things are headed and try to sort of sound the alarm um, and, you know, get people to pay attention to that. Um, I think David Foster Wallace did that in a way that he would amend his pieces with these sudden little 
cliff, you know, footnotes that were that were reflective of the way consciousness operates now. He was sort of hyperlinking before there was such a thing as hyperlinks, um, or recognizing how pervasive that was going to be. Uh, that that way of thinking in, in in cognition, you know, a few years later. So I, th- I think that happens, but I don't think it's like literature needs to reinvent itself. You know, the novel, uh, Jennifer Egan was just saying this, it's a beautiful thing to hear her say, you know, the novel is an incredibly supple, uh, and the short story for that matter, and the poem, these are incredibly adaptable and supple forms of art. You can have a traditional piece of storytelling that absolutely blows people away and astonishes people. It's just as traditional as Dickens, as traditional as uh, you know, Don Quixote, as far back as you want to go. And then you can have uh, a novel like uh, like Jennifer Egan's, uh, you know, Visit from the Goon Squad, which has this unbelievably moving PowerPoint presentation. If you see what I mean, it's not like literary art isn't totally adaptable. It really is. It doesn't need to be reinvented. We just need to figure out, as writers, ways to make sure that it remains a vital voice in the culture, even if it, in our inherently visual, distracted culture, even if a little further out on the margins. I mean, I think I take that as a as a reason to sort of have a call to arms and say to writers, okay, dudes, you're really up against it. You're going to have to write stuff that forces people to listen and pay attention. It doesn't mean you should be histrionic, uh, but it does mean you have to be as emotionally real and as, as lucid and as insightful as the readers can. You have to have such exquisite concentration in your lab that and such urgency and, and a sense of real... Uh, importance in the work you do that people when they pick it up can't stop reading because you're only going to get about a minute of their time as a sample you know and then they're going to flit off to the next channel you got to make sure that it's a minute that makes them pick up the book and keep reading well yeah no i mean i, I love hearing you say that because it really is ultimately about uh, emotion and urgency and if you don't i always the way i always phrase it is that if you don't change your reader's body temperature you're done and right. I'm the same right. way as a reader. I live for that. Like, I just want to feel, you know, that surge where you go, oh, you know, and it, it's got me. And then and then it's a pleasure to continue. But, you know, more often than not, uh, it doesn't happen. That's the truth. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that a byproduct of this feeling of urgency, of the feeling that writers have, that they have to compete with this frantic visual culture, um, is that I find more and more manuscripts I get, people think that that means that they should start in a quote-unquote dramatic situation in the middle of a scene without explaining anything. So you just get this sudden burst of images and thoughts and this kind of chaotic, frantic, uh, hysterical uh, wash of, of quote-unquote colorful you know, um, images and, and you know, observations and, and insights. And those are never located within the consciousness of a character, and that character is never located within a social milieu, so you're totally confused by it. And I see this more and more in the manuscripts that I look at, the student work, and I think it's reflective of this insecurity, a basic insecurity about storytelling. If you have uh, uh, the first line of a story that's like, you know, that begins, um, you know, uh, the the year my father died, uh, I started fucking my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Donna Weeks. You've told the whole plot of, of, of this story, right? It's a fourth grader who suffers the death of a parent and, and initiates an affair with his teacher. Uh, or let's make it let's make it eleventh grade, so it doesn't feel so uh, potentially illegal. Right. But you know that that's the entire plot in the first sentence, and you have actually helped the reader by telling them immediately what you know. Readers have two questions when they enter any 
piece of writing, any story. Who do I care about and what do they care about? And as soon as those two uh, uh, questions are answered and gratified, the happier the reader is going to be. You know, um, so I guess what I'm saying is I think that this insecurity makes young writers actually overcorrect and they try to start in the middle of the action without orienting the reader. And as a result, you get the sense that there's sort of this frantic, that, that the reader is frantic for something. But the reader, the, the writer, I mean, is sort of frantic to get your attention, not, you know, they don't have trust in the traditional storytelling where the idea is really to, um, you know, to, to tell people up front why they should keep reading it because this is a story about love and this is a story about loss, you know, whatever it is. They, they've really lost faith in traditional storytelling in, in the idea that you can say once upon a time there was a beautiful princess, uh, you know, uh, and, and this tragedy befell her. Um, what I see increasingly is like, you know, gunfire, you know, gunshots went off and, and he knew that he was done for but if she would only come and rescue, and you're like, where am I? Who's talking? What's going on? Right, um, right. I, I can't tell you how many, because when I've uh, taught creative writing in the past, I can't tell you how many papers I've written. I've written things like, you know, be clear, just say it. You know, those kinds of yeah. sentiments where you're like, just say it. Just tell us, you know, what's right. happening. You don't need to be, uh, you know, so opaque and, and elliptical about it. It, it can be... Uh, you know, perfectly riveting. If you just sort of say what's happening, tell the truth. It's so. more. It's it, it, it's more riveting. In fact, if you give, I mean, you think about it. How is the re, how is the reader supposed to embed in the consciousness of a character if we don't know who the character is, where they are, what the dramatic circumstances are around them, what they want, what the what's keeping them from what they want? And yeah, the great novels, um, uh, what what uh, Henderson the Rain King. When, you know, when I ask myself, why did I take this trip to Africa at age 55? You know, why, when I ask myself this question, uh, all is chaos. I, you know, and, and he, there's this long litany of like all the things that are going wrong in his life. And like, you know, in, within the first paragraph, two paragraphs, exactly what the book's going to be about. A guy who's suffering an identity crisis, a midlife crisis involving all these specific things, takes a trip to Africa to try to like find himself again. There's no need, you know, to, to to hold back information. And in fact, when you do that, the reader is just in this state of confusion and disorientation. And I I, don't, I think writers don't always get that. And I think it's they lose faith in storytelling. It's not that people no longer want to be told stories. They want that. It's just that you know there's there's a sense among writers that insecure their own insecurity gets wants them. They want to jump ahead and get to what they consider the quote-unquote good part, which is all the, like, fancy images and the dramatic um, physical action. Um, and it, it's really sad because you can see that, that I can see that students are really eager to tell a story. It's just that they're so insecure that they feel like narration is this bureaucratic concern, that, that establishing a strong independent narrator is sort of for chumps. And I always want to say to them, dude, that's not for chumps. You know, you, all you have to do is tell me exactly what's going to happen. You know, show me the gun in the first sentence. I know it's, and I'll stay with you because, you know, in fact, you can even tell me who gets shot. I'm still going to read the story. In fact, I'm going to read the story m more voraciously because I know that there is a death that occurs, you know, or at least a gunshot. I don't need to start in the middle of a firefight. Well, exactly. And, you know, it seems like this might be a perfect place to transition into talking about 
what happens after you've mastered narrative, after you've gotten to the point where you can write a story that somebody would actually want to read. And, uh, you know, at that point, when you get to publication, you inevitably uh, turn your attention to the business of publishing. It's going to happen. Any writer who gets all the way, uh, you know, through the, the obstacle course and has a book out is going to be thinking about how to find a readership. And I'm curious to know what you think of this. Like, what does it take to move books? What does it take to get people to pay attention? Is it media coverage? Do you have to have mainstream media coverage? Do you have to get on television? Do you have to uh, have the right agent? Do you have to have the right publisher? Do you have to have the right publicist at the publishing house? Do you have to have the right independent publicist? Like, I, I know a lot of writers grapple with these questions and, you know, what do you think? Is it is it one of these things? Is it all of the above? Is it some secret formula that I'm not aware of? Like, what? what is it? It's a, well, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, my, my take is that, that it's a combination of things, but mostly it's a great book. I mean, you know, honestly, as, as a mid-list author, like at best, I'm kind of a cult author, I, I recognize that, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good, you know, great example of like, uh, you know, Steingart's book, uh, and, and this is true of a lot of his books. When I read them, I recognize that they are unbelievably funny and sad and and, and beautiful. And, and um, you know, Joshua Ferris, when I read his work, or Laurie Moore, Jennifer Egan, uh, you know, when I read these, Daniel Mason. Um, all the people who, all those young people who get their stories printed in the New Yorker, you know why they get a wide readership? You know why they were picked? Because they're really fucking good. Because they sat in their, you know, in their cave and they did better work than I've been able to. Period. Did they also have some good fortune? Yes. Did they have a big fancy agent? Probably. But you know what? They got the big fancy agent and they got the story taken by the New Yorker or picked up by the big press because they are awesome. They figured out how to do it, and it wasn't, it's mostly talent. A great novel will find a place in the culture. A great novel will always make it happen. My pal Billy Giraldi wrote this novel, Busy Monsters. It's fucking breathtaking. I knew it when I read the first page. I was, I turned to my wife, I was like, Billy did it. I thought this guy was half a lap behind me, and he's fucking three laps in front of me. You know, he just did it. And that's the thing that it's important for people to realize because so many people, I think, get so caught up in the idea that there's some secret formula or something they don't know. It's just a matter of, like, lucking out or getting the right publicity or networking with the right people. And it's like, that's not it. A great novel, a great collection of short stories. It might not immediately get acclaim, but history sticks out the phonies, you know. And, uh, you know, great work gets recognized. You don't think period. Really? You think so? I mean, because, like, aren't there – it seems like in, in a world of so many books that, like – you know, there have to be some really worthy books out there that just don't get noticed and there's no real reason for it. Is that wrong? You think that like they just weren't good enough? I think, uh, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to say that. It's kind of a Venn diagram. And, and I, your counterpoint is a good one. I'm not trying to suggest that there isn't some unbelievable work out there that doesn't get overlooked. But I'm thinking of an example of a book like Stoner, you know, which I'm this huge advocate for. That's a book that didn't get noticed during the writer's lifetime. It was put out of print almost immediately. It was John, John Williams' uh, 1969, I think, novel. Very quiet novel, devastating, incredibly beautiful. And that's a book that, you know, sold a couple thousand, three thousand copies when it was first published by Viking, went out of print, 
but it has had a life and it has survived because the people who've read it, like me and Dan Wakefield and other critics and, and writers, have been so blown away by it that they keep it alive. And that's what I that's what I guess I mean, is that if if you really reach that deeply into the reader and you implicate them that fully, the book is going to survive. And it all you know, it, it might not be as much as it quote unquote deserves, but I honestly believe that 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 you know, we're in a guy like Vonnegut, you know, his early work was, was really overlooked. It was not that big a deal. And then finally he wrote, you know, Slaughterhouse Five and everybody looked back at Cat's Cradle and, you know, Mother Night, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, and realized, oh my God, this is like a, a major important artist. Um, it might not even happen in somebody's lifetime. You know, Emily Dickinson published, however, a little sheaf of poems in her lifetime, but her work was recognized as huge and monumental and, and life-changing and, and you know, sort of changed how people wrote and thought about poetry. I'm not suggesting that people don't get overlooked, but I think far, the far more common situation is that a piece of work might not initially get recognized, but if it is reached deep enough into the soul, to put it in cheesy terms, it's going to eventually get the props it deserves because it's moving individual readers and those people are so excited by it that they're going to pass it along. And in the end, Brad, that's how books get sold by word of mouth. Right. That's kind of what I'm, that's where I've arrived at too. Books. Well, think about it. it it's, too, it's too inconvenient an art form for like some commercial to sell it. You want to sell light beer under arm deodorant or, you know, fucking dick lengtheners. You can do that with a commercial, but a book is too inconvenient an experience. You need somebody to say to you to press that book into your hands and say, your seven hours or 12 hours are not going to be wasted, dude. This thing spoke to me and it's going to speak to you. Well, and speaking of, uh, you know, books that, uh, you know, you pass along urgently to your friends and books that really have strong word of mouth and have managed to survive over the years, I want to get back to Kurt Vonnegut just because, you know, he's been mentioned several times during this conversation. And I know that you are a huge fan and you, you've written about it actually really brilliantly in your essay about Vonnegut. And, uh, you know, you got to go see him read late in his life. You actually got to be in the room with him and, you know, you met him briefly. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that, uh, you know, I think our, our listeners, many of whom are probably on the same page, would, would love to hear it. Well, you know, I mean, it was very glancing. I mean, I, I was, it was most, it was a very fanboy kind of experience. You know, there's a great, there's a great uh, biography I just read that I'm going to be re reviewing here a little bit um, by Charles Shields called And So It Goes, and it's like Vonnegut a Life. And he really got, he's the official biographer. He got much more access to Vonnegut. He didn't get a long time with him, but he got some time and he really immersed himself. It's unbelievably researched, very, it's fascinating. You're going to love it. It's a Vonnegut fan. Really, really good biography. But you know, my experience was basically seeing him at the end of his life, and I had a glancing interaction with him. I handed him a letter in the hopes that he would let me interview him, you know, and and mostly just sort of he was swallowed up by fans and admirers, and I just was sort of in awe of him, too in awe of him to really uh, be able to even speak, or anything, you know, to him. But seeing him on this panel was kind of devastating because it was the end of his life, and I think he knew that, and he, there was a sense in which he was really heartbroken, and. Uh, he's speaking to all these people. I think he was unbelievably articulate, but there was a part of him that was also just devastated and kind of exhausted. You know, imagine you're Vonnegut and you're living in the midst of the Bush era, this, you know, George W. Bush era, and you at one time sort of lived through the 60s and thought, wow, people are going to um, 
recognize that we should avoid wars at all costs. They're going to recognize that we're not taking being good stewards of the planet. Like, idealism is going to win, and people are going to start to be nicer and figure out that they need to be in these folk societies. And think they, think about being at the end of your life quite un, unhealthy, knowing that you're at death's door, and, you know, living through the through George W. Bush era, I mean, Vonnegut was heartbroken. You know, where America's sort of moral state, we just regressed to this kind of infantile state, uh, and it's bellicose, warlike, completely greedy and selfish, and, you know, he, he was heartbroken, and that was very clear to me, and it was sad to see him. He was alone up there, and, you know, I remember at the intermission, Joyce Carol Oates and, and the other panelists kind of got up and walked off stage with the moderator, and there was Vonnegut, you know, uh, you know, this old guy who's been trying to get people to act up to, you know, to their best values for 80 years and, and you know, slowly standing up and sort of shuffling off stage. And there was this, I remember there's this mic cord. And I kept thinking, oh, no, he's going to trip. He's going to trip. Like, oh, please get over the mic cord, you know. And it was just, I think that's what I was thinking because I was, I felt the precariousness of what it might be like to be that disappointed to feel like all that work you did in your life, all that, all that effort and toil to try and make people more, you know, empathetic, um, didn't work. You know that that he might be able to speak to a few thousand people in Hartford and maybe even a few few million people through his books, but on balance, people were behaving more and more selfishly and monstrously. Like that's a horrible thing to face. And I don't feel hopeless, by the way. I'm I'm filled with hope. But I'm also not 85 years old, and you know I didn't live really through the thick of the 60s, or and, or, um, or, or the bomb, the firebombing of Dresden. You know, I mean, bingo. Yeah, I mean he had, bingo. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, and you know maybe when you look at a life like that and a body of work like that and how it all ended, the lesson to take away is just that uh, you know sometimes change uh, doesn't happen as quickly as we would like it to. I think I I think uh, idealists, you know, uh, are uh, let's put it this way: like comedians, as he was, are, are are kind of heartbroken idealists. And I mean, that's certainly what my you know, God bless America, this new collection is. I'm like I I I, do, I don't mean that title ironically. I do bless America. I know I'm lucky to be living in this time in this place, the freedoms that we're afforded. But I am heartbroken about, you know, I, I'm a real patriot. I believe in America, but that's the exact reason that I'm kind of heartbroken. This is a country with the best ideals in the world. Uh, it's founded on the best ideals in the world, and yet we have so much, and um, we just don't live up to them. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful about Occupy Wall Street, but on balance, I feel, I feel like this kind of heartbroken patriot where it's like, man, we should be able to be more generous. This should not be tough for us because there are places in the world where people are really struggling with illness, not having proper medical care, not having enough food, not having potable water, uh, living in a place where this it's war torn. There's a real question of whether their friends and neighbors, children, parents, you know, spouses are going to survive into next week. Uh, and we have all those things in the bag. We can't afford to be a little more generous with one another and, and a little bit more compassionate towards one another. So. Um, I feel like as I move this book in the world, people are going to think, oh, Almond's being snarky, oh, good, goes America, you know, he obviously means that ironically, and I don't mean it ironically at all. I couldn't be prouder to be an American um, sometimes. I just want to feel like that more of the time. Well, and do you feel like the stories in this collection are in some way derived from this sense that, uh, you know, America is not living up to its highest uh, ideals enough of the time? Is that where 
you know, you're working from thematically? No, I think, I, no, it's not a political collection. It's, it's short stories. It's a bunch of individuals and me just trying to, like, force them into emotional danger and see them through it. But the nature of that danger, you know, oftentimes has to do with the, the things that I think are where people live in America, that we're disconnected from our family, that we're full about the relationships with the people who we're closest to, that we're unable to, um, you know, to sort of escape the, our past, the, the, the sense of um, mourning that we have for not being able to reach people, the unrequited love we have for not just our romantic partners or you know, people we hope to get with, but much more so for our families. It was Vonnegut who said in that last panel, uh, when somebody asked me, you know, what's your essential topic? And you think, oh, Vonnegut, he's going to talk about the fate of the species and, you know, all this kind of thing, our, our morals and so forth. And he said, I write again and again about my family. And, you know, that's where people live, Brad. You know, everything else just grows over it. But um, the collection is very much about individual Americans. I think there are themes that run through it that have to do with how disconnected people are and how sort of full of regret they are and how, how much people are moving too fast. There's no coincidence that a couple of the stories, two or three of the stories, involve airports and airplanes. And, you know, there's a couple of stories about veterans returning to this country because, hey, we are, whether we admit it or not, living in a time of perpetual war. And these young men and women, mostly men, are coming back to this country having been subjected to absolutely senseless violence in places halfway across the globe with no moral coherency uh, and oftentimes being disfigured physically and psychically and emotionally. And that's on our conscience and it's on our bill and we got to look at it. So, you know, that kind of stuff. But, I, but I'm hoping the stories aren't, they're not political advertisements, they're not moral advertisements. I really just tried to, like anybody who's living in America right now, I would think, and trying to sort of pay attention to what's happening would be writing about the same sorts of issues, you know, personal issues. Well, and you're also, I mean, with the title of the book, it seems like you're trying to uh, reclaim God bless America as a phrase. Because That's right. It's thrown around so loosely, and it's it's almost to the point where when you, when I hear politicians say it, especially, I just sort uh, of roll my eyes. It's it's terrible, you know. I don't I don't just roll my eyes. I, I get it, I get it like my gut turns, you know, because it's so phony and. So it's such a slogan. And I, I, my point is, hey, if you're going to bless America, then you better really recognize what America is right now. If you want to say God bless America, then don't just bless some patriotic slogan, some you know, bullshit bad campaign or advertisement for your own patriotism. Bless the, law, bless the people who are lost and led astray by their own hope. Bless everybody and recognize, you know, that was Jesus' toughest gig. Everybody gets to, it's easy to, to burnish the saint. It's tougher to redeem the sinner. And the book is really sort of full of people making bad decisions, the wrong decisions. And those are the people that I think it, it's most important to, you know, to write stories about because we're all like that inside. No, no matter what kind of marketing we try to project on the outside, you know, inside we're all as sort of petty and full of disappointment and transgressive fucked up thoughts and, you know, so the, the, it is really an attempt to sort of say, all right, if you're going to bless America, you better really recognize what America is. It's a collection of individual people really struggling to make it through. And, you know, don't just give us the amber waves of grain and, the, you know, the, the, the political ad for the country. Recognize what Americans are really like right now, how lonely they are, how much they want to connect, and sometimes really have no way of doing it. Well, I think that's a great note to uh, to close on, and I wish you all the best with the collection. It's called God Bless America. It's available from Lookout Press. Is that correct? 
Yes, it is. Yeah, and they're you know, they're just awesome. The editor I had who kicked my ass sideways on all the stories Ben George's. I mean, I'll just say this sort of in conclusion, like the one thing I've recognized after printing books with big presses and little presses and on my own is like a, a good editor is more precious than rubies. Like what you want is somebody as far as I've taken these stories and like the story that was in the best American short stories, which was like something I was so it never happened for me before after 15 years of writing stories. And I thought this story's done. And Ben George literally went through that story line by line and forced me to make it better. And like that is what you want from a publishing experience is an editor who takes the work so seriously and understands your intent and, and forces you to, ex- to exert that extra little burst of attention and empathy to make the stories even better. So I couldn't be like more thrilled that this guy kicked my ass, even though by the end of the editing experience, my daughter was like, well, you tell mean old Ben George to leave you alone. You know, so I was always like heading up there like, Ben George needs me to do more work. He was just kind of filling our household, but he was a total hero in terms of just like, the guy kicked my ass sideways and made the story so much better. And um, that's like anybody who's thinking about, well, how should I decide who to go with if I have that choice? Go with the editor who is the best. You know, there's no point in trying to sell... 20,000 copies of a mediocre book, as, as Stephen Elliott told me once. It's like, you should just find the best editor, period. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's like, uh, I think every writer should be so lucky to have to withstand that kind of abuse, you know? Exactly, exactly. Well, well, once again, I just want to wish you all the best with the collection. God bless America. And, uh, you know, hopefully next time you're out in Los Angeles on book tour, we'll get a chance to visit. That sounds great. I would love that. All right, man, I hope you and your beautiful... Uh, you know, family are doing great. All right, buddy. Take it easy. You too. See ya. Okay, everybody. There you have it. That's the show. That's Steve Allman. Be sure to check him out on the web at stevenallman.com. That's S-T-E-V as in Victor, E-N, Almond, just like the nut, dot com. Stevenallman.com. Or you can check out his publisher online. It's Lookout Books. And the website is lookout.org. And you can pre-order his book, Right now, there, you can get a deal on it straight from the publisher. And uh, the book is going to be available on October 25th. So before I go, quick reminder, if you love the show, if you like the show, if you you have middling feelings about the show, but you're feeling generous and you want to support the show and help me out and help me keep the lights on, uh, both with regard to this program and also over at the Nervous Breakdown, please join the Nervous Breakdown's book club. You just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar and sign up. It's $9.99 a month. You get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a great way to help, and you get something for it. You get a book, and you get it for less than the cost of a book. Can't beat that, and boy, would I be grateful. So there you have it. Thank you for listening. My name's Brad. That isn't going to change. I'm stuck with Brad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try to own Brad. I'm going to try to change the public perception of Brad. I, I'm probably doing, I don't know what I'm doing with it or doing to it by virtue of doing this show. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, and life is about acceptance. So I think I'm just going to accept the fact that that's my name. Thank you for listening. Back soon, talking to other authors, to other people, etc.